Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 246. Tonight is the 22nd of Shvat, which is the 31st yard site of the Rebetzin Chaim Mushke, our Rebetzin. On the 22nd of Shvat, in Tavshin Memches is when she passed away. Sad day. And yet, we, Chassidim, Jews in general, we honor a day like this by committing to what she stood for, her legacy, together, of course, with her great husband, the partner, the Rebbe himself, and everything they gave to us, each individually, collectively, to the community and to the larger world. So we will begin, of course, talking about that. And we will also, um, as we always do, talk about the timely events, which is that we're in the week of Parshas Mishpatim, the beginning of Parshas Mishpatim. I want to begin by saying that this program is dedicated in loving memory of Lisa Shuwaki upon her birthday on January 28th, which is tomorrow as well. Okay, Chav Beishvat, this weekend is also Kinnus HaShluchis, the International Conference of Shluchis, the women emissaries and ambassadors from all over the world that have gathered together in New York, and as we speak, are honoring and celebrating their work, tremendous work in literally every corner of the globe, with that feminine touch. I've spoken about this in previous years, so I'm not going to go over that which was said, but it still deserves mention because it's not just about the fact that it was spoken about, that every, every time it happens, it deserves its um, proper place and respecting and honoring that which they contribute to the Jewish community and to the larger community. So I did speak about it in, in episodes 55, 101, 150, and 200, as I always do the cross-referencing. But I wanted to mention that. I will add something. And additionally, this a few days ago, at their request, I actually did a My Life Chassidus Applied special shluchis edition, which can be seen and heard online. If you go to our YouTube channel, we have a special My Life Chassidus Applied channel. You'll see that special edition. It was a three-hour session, actually. And the shluchis submitted questions, the same format as we do here. They submitted questions, which uh, I responded to item by item. A very interesting session, very blunt and candid questions. So I don't necessarily have to then now do that in this particular program, though I want to make mention of it, especially being that this 22nd of Shvat. In one of the more powerful talks that the Rebbe gave in regard to the Rebetzin, and he spoke a number of times about her, though she was extremely private and discreet, but after the passing of the Rebetzin, the Rebbe spoke about her, was a talk that later became the Rebbe edit and later became part of a kuntras called B'cha Yevorech Yisrael. B'cha is the letters Chav Beis, 22. B'cha Yevorech Yisrael, which is a verse in the Torah that with you and through you, the Jewish people will be blessed. And the Rebbe referred that to Chov Beishvat, the discourse of the Rebetzin, being a daughter of her father, being the Friedrich Rebbe, and all her schusim, the Rebbe gave out this kuntris that a night in that year, Tav Shinun Beis, would be one of the last things the Rebbe gave out to everyone who came by. So it has special value. That talk in which he speaks about which is printed in there, I had the merit and schus to write, and the Rebbe edited it. And when I say wrote, I wrote what the Rebbe said, 
and organized it, and the Rebbe then edited it. One short word that the Rebbe speaks about the Rebbe in Chaya Mushka, her name, Chaya Mushka. Chaya means life, vitality. Mushka comes from the word musket, which is a uh, beautiful odor, a beautiful scent, an aroma. And there it discusses which aroma it's referring to. Some say it connects to the Kteris, the incense in the, in the temple, had a moir or a mushka, mushak, which is the root of the name mushka. What's the significance? So the Rebbe explains there the whole purpose of creation is in the words of the Medrash and explained in Tanya chapter 36 is for the soul to come down to this world and transform the material world and t- convert it and turn it into a dwelling place, a home for God. Now, what means a home for God? means that even though it's a material existence, a selfish existence, that's self-absorbed, that it should become a spiritual environment, a sanctuary for the divine, for spirituality, for transcendence. <clears throat> In building a home, there are two aspects. One part of a home is shelter, to have a roof over your head, protect you from the elements, and simply have to be able to, uh, to live in comfort. But there's another element to a home, which is beautifying the home. You can have a home that is just the bare elements, the bare raw necessities with a roof over your head and walls, but it's not necessarily a, warm, a home that's warm and inviting and filled with vitality and energy. Comes Chayamushka, that the woman in general, and as indicated in the Rebetzin's name, she adds Dirana, she beautifies the home. She has that unique touch that doesn't just take the raw elements. A man can go and chop wood or bring and has the, do the heavy labor to build the, fact, the actual structure. But to make a structure into a nurturing environment is the unique quality, the feminine dimension. And that includes and consists of two elements. One, vitality, chaya, chayas. And number two, mushka, an aroma that creates an environment that is very pleasant. I would encourage everyone to read that talk because there it's elaborated upon. I'm just giving a short kernel of it. But it's a very powerful lesson in life because we see very often we may do things that are necessary, but we don't add that additional dimension of beautifying it, of creating that nurturing, warm, and inviting environment. And without that, often you don't really create what's necessary for a person to thrive. As the Talmud says, a beautiful home, it expands the mind of a person. When you're living in a, in a squalor or in a very tight environment or it's not warm, even though, yes, it may protect you from the rain and from the snow and from wild animals and from others, but, from other dangers, but it doesn't have that element of allowing you to expand. And making a home for God in this material world, in this hostile world, it's necessary not just to create the basic bare minimum, but to create that invitation that when you walk into your own environment, when you meet a person like that, you want, you feel that embracing the divine, embracing that which is godly, which is holy, is beautiful. Beautiful for you, beautiful for everyone. And it's not just done out of obligation, but it's something you really want to be part of because you say it also enhances my whole life. As elaborated upon in that classic talk. So that was one thought on the 22nd of Shvat, which brings blessings to all of us. Chavbez is also the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And all blessings are encompassed with one letter. Every, every, every word 
in existence, every blessing begins with one of the letters of the 22 Hebrew letters from Aleph to Tav. So we have the blessings that bring blessings to us, not just, again, the minimum, but a blessing, blessings in health, blessings in livelihood, blessings in building beautiful families, blessings in internal peace. Every form of blessing of building strong marriages and healthy marriages and sustainable ones and having nachas, which is pleasure from yourself, from those around you and from the entire world, all benefits from your pleasant chayimushka attitude to life. So not just getting by, but actually adding that flavor, that dimension of a vitality, a lebedikite, a chayis, a vitality, a dynamic element, and that beautiful aroma. You walk in, you feel, you sense a comfort that comes from a beautiful scent. Now, it's also Pasha Mishpatim, and as such, we're going to talk about a question that actually came in a number a while back, but it fits to this week's chapter, and connect it as well to the 22nd of Shvat. So the question is, this Pasha Mishpatim is the chapter that comes right after the story of Sinai, the revelation of Sinai, the Ten Commandments, in last week's chapter. Then we read, Ve'ela HaMishpatim, that these are the laws that God said, Ashatosim Lifneim. To Moshe, that these are the laws that Moshe Tosim Lifneim presented them. As Rashi says, the commentaries explain, presented to them like a ready table, a set table. In other words, Shulchan Aruch, that's set. Not that they have to go look for the food or look for the delicacies, but it's all prepared in a way that they can easily access it. And what is the first law that he talks about? Kisikna Evedivri. When you will purchase a Jewish Evid, servant or slave. And it begins laws that seem to be talking about slavery. So here's the question. Please explain the mitzvahs of slavery in this week's Torah portion. How could the Torah sanction slavery? What is the eternal relevance? What eternal relevance does this have? And more specifically, hi Rav Jacobson, why are there mitzvahs of slavery? Why aren't the mitzvahs of slavery? Why aren't the mitzvahs of slavery applicable today? Meaning literal. What is the eternal relevance of the mitzvahs of slavery? Thanks. Another person writes a question, a similar question. Why, of all things, when you start enumerating the laws, begins with slavery? It would seem fine. That was a, that was a that's a reality that needs to be addressed. But why of all things? There's so many laws. We read on this chapter, there are many, many laws. Why of this? And uh, uh, the order in Torah is also significant. So why does it begin with Evid? And Evid, again, the word Evid can be servant, can be slave. Now we all know our reaction to the word slavery. We think of slavery, we think of the, the slavery of the blacks, enslaved by the white people in America. We think, of course, as Jews, the slavery. We were enslaved, <coughs> excuse me, we were enslaved in Egypt for 210 years, harsh bondage. Every time you hear the word slavery, nothing positive is elicited. It always refers to one people oppressing another. So suddenly, the Jews just came out of Egypt. They suffered greatly. Of all people, they should know the crime of slavery. And here, I'm just adding another question, and here, one of the first laws after Matan Torah begins with slavery, if not the first What's going on here? What's the, where's the humanity? So it clearly begs 
or understanding. So let's begin on a very basic level. On a basic level, if you read the laws, you'll see the, human, the humaneness of these laws. It's hardly the laws that people, God forbid, tragically applied in real slavery. The rights of the so-called servant, and that's why I want to change it from slave to servant, are many. And it's not like he just is. Yes, it is connected to being property. But as he speaks, the first type of servant is one that sells himself into slavery but for whatever reason, because he's in debt or he's looking for a livelihood. So he comes and says, I will do services for you for this and this amount of payment. You'll support my family. Now, there's, you know, we know there's services that people do that are not in the form of servitude, but there was also services in the form of servitude, especially in those days. So if you really read it, it's not at all the laws of slavery. It's not slavery. It's not slavery as we know it in history. But the Torah actually, actually um, does, not, does not condone it. As a matter of fact, it sees it as a negative. Because when this servant, after seven years, which is what the first law is, after seven years he goes free, after he did his service, and he says, I, and he insists, I want to stay with my so-called master, it's frowned upon by the Torah. They actually have to even pierce a hole in his ear. Why? Because this ear heard that you're a servant of God, not a servant of other people. So if you read it in context, you come to see that it's actually not considered a positive. And even, though, even if a person, for whatever reason, determines that this is what he wants to do, which is a form of humiliation, there are such laws that most people would not want to even take a servant like this for hire. The laws continue about different type of servants. I'm not going to go through all of them. But the first level of explanation is that we're not talking about the slavery of the negative sort that we've... It's still negative, but it's not of oppression where literally a people enslaved another people without any laws, without any due process, without any course, without any recourse for justice, which of course is a great tragedy and from the Torah point of view, a travesty. A travesty just as the Egyptians did or what the white people in America did or wherever slavery in the world is today, or, as, or ever was. It completely goes against the principles of Judaism, and Torah would state every human being is created in the divine image. There's no such thing as someone that is less than that. However, in this chapter, it talks about a person who chooses, at his own volition, for whatever reason, to be a servant of it to another. And even there, the Torah protects his rights as you read the Torah's laws, and you see how much care a master has to have to a servant like that. The truth is I don't like to use the word master, but it's really the person who this servant has now subjugated himself. That's on a basic level. We all know that the Torah, however, is multidimensional. And it's really, as I've spoken a number of times, especially in the last weeks, the true story of the Torah is a blueprint for life. It's not just about certain laws and humane laws. It's a blueprint for life. And as the questioner asks, what is its lesson to us? Actual, the laws of, ser- of servitude don't really apply today for many different reasons. It's not the time of the temple, and we can't really live up to these guidelines as different commentaries and codifiers explain. <clears throat> but what is the deeper meaning? The Torah, was, as I said, is a, sp- a spiritual bl- blueprint for life. Life user manual. So when you look in, the, in Torah Ur, which is the classic Hasidic text of the Alter Rebbe, and here he explains that other question that was asked, why does it begin with this? 
Because kisikne eved ivri, the word eved comes from the word avoida, service. It really is reflecting the human service, the, in, in, this, in service of the divine, which is the purpose of creation. So it begins with this because all of us are servants that live in this world, and the cycle of seven is the seven years or the seven days or the cycle of seven through which we serve, and we serve with effort. We are servants of God. But it's humane servants. We're not talking about a God that is oppressive. We're not talking about human beings that in any way are being treated unjustly. So we have to subjugate ourselves in service of God. And that's what the Torah is really talking about. And it refers to the sixth, seventh, seven is also the seven millennia. 6,000 millennia from the beginning of creation we serve, and then comes the seventh millennia, Shabbos, or in this case the seventh millennium, the Shabbos when all of us will be freed from the hard element of this work and will reap our reward, as he explains in Torah Ar. But then is a very powerful and beautiful mimer, and that's not even my words, a discourse from the Alter Rebbe that the Tzemach Tzedek refers to, Drush Nichbad Ma'id, a very distinguished, a very honorable discourse. It's an expression very rarely used, if at all. And I'm citing here, the, the, the discourse is printed in Eira Teira, which is the Tzemach Tzedek's, Tzemach Tzedek's writings. In Eira Teira, um, in, in Pasha Mishpatim, page 1,127. If you want a, a distillation of the ideas there, please go to Lekutei Sichas, volume 26, page 368 and on. This is a talk the Rebbe delivered, actually in connection with a kinus, a gathering of young women, Jewish women. Of the alumni from Machon Chana. So this is printed in this, the Rebbe edited this very beautiful sikha where he lays out the three chapters, Yisrael, Mishpatim, Truma, and Mishpatim being the middle one, the one we're now, all of them emphasizing another dimension of the unique contribution of women. And this is where he brings this the discussion of Mishpatim, and he says that based on that discourse, that there are three types of servants the Torah talks about. One is Evid Kanani, Evid Kanani is a servant from Canaan, a non-Jewish servant. Evid Ivri, a Jewish servant. And Amma Ivriya was a woman, a female maidservant. And he talks about them all, three dimensions that each of us in our service referred to. Briefly, he says these three are number one, going from the bottom up. That when we begin serving, we all begin being, we are all self-centered entities self-indulgent, survival, and so on. And what we want to become is servants to something greater cause than ourselves. Instead of egocentric, God-centric. Serving something more than ourselves. So the next first step, he says, is Evid Kanani. What does that refer to? That's the word called Iskafia, where you refrain from self-indulgence. That the animal soul is still very powerful and wants to do whatever it wants, but what you do is and it's, and it's drawn to all kinds of self-indulgent pleasures. But you force yourself to turn towards serving God in action. You may not be emotionally there, you may not be intellectually there, but you understand the importance of not just being a self-indulgent creature. 
That's level one. Then you reach level two. There's a higher level. That now the, the midas, the emotions of the divine soul have begun to emerge. In other words, the transcendent voice in each of us, which is, comes from the divine soul as opposed to the animal soul, is beginning to shine. And also the animal soul is beginning to sense the value of a transcendent life, one that's drawn and driven by higher cause than just self-preservation, just survival of the fittest. This is like a servant that's not just doing action, he's also preparing the food, he's also doing more type of uh, activities that are a little more refined than just the basic minimal of a servant. This is the second level. And the third level, Amivri, is the highest one. There, the transformation of the animal soul and has become now like a maidservant, which its primary service is to create refinement in the home, as he explains in this discourse, in this, uh, in this uh, talk based on the discourse, to the point where you actually possible situation that the maidservant marries the person that, that had bought her and ends up being his wife. So it's a total unity, like a marriage, a husband and wife. So you can imagine coming from a servant to becoming a partner with God. So briefly, these are three levels in serving, and the Rebbe emphasizes here on the power of the feminine in each one of them. And because especially Omivriya, that's the highest level, is the female servant, the maidservant. In the context of the chapters, in the chapter Yisrael, we see that God spoke, told Moses to speak first to the women and then to the men. In Mishpatim, we see the value of the Amir Vriya, the female, the maid servant, is the most refined of serving the divine. And the third chapter, Truma, next chapter, building the temple, is actually building a home from this world for the divine. We spoke before the purpose. So there too, it was the women that brought the offerings they brought the donations even before the men. You can look up this talk as well. It's a very powerful talk, very interesting, very unique. And with that, let's move on. I believe the lessons are quite clear, that especially in a week where we're honoring the 22nd of Shvat, we're also honoring the power of the woman, the power of the woman to create refinement in this world. Now, this doesn't mean a man cannot create refinement, but it's a partnership. And each one has their primary focus, and each one overlaps and complements the other. So in honoring that, this is the time to think about how we not just create, but also beautify, do it in the most refined and the most um, elevated and uh, subtle fashion. Okay. And of course, it answered the question, the eternal relevance for our times, because these three levels of service are here all the time. So when you read the chapter, you realize it means you and how you serve a higher cause. With that, let us go to another another question. Heaven or earth? How do I choose between personal spiritual growth and commitment to home and family? How do I choose between the soul and the spirit, this person writes. Now, right away, it was taken. What does that mean? What is soul and spirit? So she explains. 
Let us say that the spirit is like a structure of love and an abiding place, a temple for God. And the soul is the life, fountain, and altar within. Or the soul is our longing for creating and manifesting and needs to find a home in this world. Do you follow me? Well, let's see. In my case, to express the innate, the spirit, is in the way of building a home and with the wish to let it extend to include the big home, the earth, wherever I go. As a homemaker and grow in my pursuit of becoming like the woman in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, that she's the foundation, Eishas Chayel, the spirit in me about kindness, modesty, and other attributes of expressing the love of God as my ideals. And it's also about compassion and about doing good works. The soul, on the other hand, this is her interpretation, is about a very powerful creativity force within me and wants to sing, dance, paint, playing the flute, creating dishes from self-made recipes, write pieces of music and songs and poems, go on adventures in the mountains, wants to be a nurse, explore the nature with curiosity and wonder all the time like a little child. And it lives in the heaven. The spirit is about love, serve, about relationships. The soul for me is about creating, being about the song within the big song. The soul is kind of a free spirit. How do I choose which path? We have only a limited amount of time. Is it better to sharpen the focus, have a concentrated lens like a laser, and only choose one path? That of the soul or that of the spirit? Thanks for any hints and direction in advance. Kind regards. Interesting question. Firstly, I want to just say, spirit and soul, I don't necessarily associate and identify with this interpretation, but I understand what you're saying. Usually for us, spirit is ruach. Soul is neshama. But regardless of the semantics here, the the spirit of the question is... One is focusing on self-actualization, of course, in a refined way and with all the talents that you describe. And one is focused on your relationships and commitment to building a family and, and home. And the question is, do you choose one over the other? Can you balance the two and so on? It's an excellent question. It's actually a question I also had on the other night when I spoke to the shluchis, <clears throat> because many of them deal with this challenge all the time. On one hand, they have beautiful families, on the other hand, they have beautiful work. They have a community. And they also have personal talents. So, without sounding overgeneralizing, I would say the following. We all know that the first priority always has to be our children because no one else is going to take care of your children. And the children are all in the form- formative years. They're vulnerable. They're defenseless. And they are the ones that look to us for nurturing and validation. So to God forbid neglect them as valuable and as idealistic and as altruistic the work of doing something, of actualizing yourself through your talents, what you call soul, but it can never be at the expense of children because they, the only ones they are going to nurture them is going to be you as a mother. I would go a step further. Mothering your children, nurturing them, is itself a way of expressing your creativity. Bring it into your Bring your unique creativity and unique skills and talents in the, in the bringing up of your children. And number three, if you do that, it will spill over also in benefiting others as well as helping actualize yourself. So if there is a choice to be made, that's the way I would respond. If you need, listen, children at some age go to school. You have time on your hands. 
by all means, play music, sing, dance, go out into the fields, paint, do whatever it is. But I don't see it as mutually exclusive. I don't see it like too compromising. Because when you're with your children, you're shaping lives. What more creative things can we do? You're shaping lives. They're impressionable children. As the example goes, like warm balls of wax, every impression, every experience they have, for good or for bad, God forbid, makes an impression that lasts. And you have that gift and honor to do that. As I said, a good parent will make a good creative person, and a good creative person will also benefit others and will help actualize who you are. So I think that myth that that's either like you know, either or, first I want to develop myself before I build a family, is incorrect. It's all part of a holistic, bigger picture. Then there will be, of course, times and choices. If your child's in need, you can't just say, listen, I have a music lesson to go to. Now, it depends on the age of the child, depends whether you have help and so on. But it's a great gift. Is it difficult? Yes, it's difficult. Is it easier to sit and play guitar or write poetry than to deal with a child who could be nagging, could be dealing with challenges and so on? At times it is. But it's both are the beauty and poetry of life. And I would say priority one is what you call spirit and then soul. When in truth, I believe that really they complement each other and they both support each other and can both together bring greatness. I've seen mothers who sit with their child and they draw, they read to their child, they teach the child to read, they get, they elicit and challenge the child. Why is that not, why is that not a part of what you call soul? And of course, in each age of children, depending on the age, there's a different ways that you can interact that way. So in spirit of what we've been speaking till now about women, this of course very much appropriate, this question, even though it was asked a while ago, but that's why I included it in this particular program. Additional discussion on this is in episodes 152 and 231. So here's a good opportunity all these programs are archived. You can find them at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You can download them as podcasts. You can search by topic. In the YouTube version of the videos, there are also timestamps. So you can actually go to the exact topic you're looking for. And by now we have 245 episodes, so you can imagine there's plenty of material. You will not, you will not uh, run out of uh, material quickly on these programs. And thank God for this honor. It's also an opportunity that at the same location, meaningfullife.com slash my life, you can submit any question anonymously, confidentially. We have no idea who's writing it. And uh, please use that opportunity. All these questions come from that forum. So just go there, write your question. Nothing is off limits. We'll address everything. You can write a comment, a feedback, a source, additional points. You can also be, feel free to Disagree, I, I will read that as well. My, my goal with this is to be a platform, a, a uh, collective platform, an interactive one, as much as possible. So please see this as something that is yours as much as mine. Okay. Might as well also use this opportunity. We survive on your support, simply put. So please go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship and dedicate a program or several programs in honor of of a loved one, in memory of a loved one, or in any other way. We survive on that, and I appreciate it, and thank you beforehand to be able to continue the programming, expand it, and so on. And finally, as we're talking about announcements, we're middle 
smack in the middle of this fifth year annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest. So go to MeaningfulLife.com slash contest and you'll find all the guidelines and the rules and you have plenty of time till February 12th is the deadline to, su- to submit your winning essay, which can win $10,000 first prize, $3,600 second prize, $1,000 third prize, and a special student track prize of $500. I'm pleased to also mention, as I did last week, that in addition to being able to submit in English and in Hebrew, you can also submit now in Russian. Of course, Yiddish was also an option for those that want to do it there, Russian. And we've been pushing it in Russia, and thank God, it's picking up traction. And um, it's only an expanding effort, which hopefully will be a global one. And people will submit from all directions, as has been the case in the past years. So please take advantage of this opportunity. Everyone's a winner, because the effort of taking an idea in Hasidic thought and applying it to a personal or global or timely challenge or issue is a tremendous effort and a tremendous contribution. The essays, and I've read many of them, and I, every week I read three essays, as, or I review three essays, are from all different directions, really remarkable contributions to life, I would say, and to the human condition. With that, let us go to the next question. <clears throat> what do the rabbeim say about a fire, God forbid? So let's talk about a fire, God forbid, it breaks out a fire, and hopefully it doesn't hurt anybody. But what is said about a fire? We all know fires are frightening. And um, do we have something in Hasidic thought, especially from the Rebbes, about this? Another question came in, which relates to it, so let me read that. Where does it say seraph? Seraph, which is the word for certain seraphim, or a certain type of angels. So the plural of it is seraphim. One of these angels is called a seraph. So seraph means fire. Seraphim means the fiery ones, a fiery one. Where does it say that seraph is the same numerical value, the gematria, as prosperity, as oshir, wealth? I can't find it. And this person refers to a video of mine, Black Magic, the Dark Side of Kabbalah, where I, I assume I mentioned it. So let me respond to this. I'll begin with a story. Without going into uh, too many details for many reasons. Uh, <clears throat> my father, um, Oliver Shalom, um, was the publisher and editor of the Algemeine Journal. Uh, as I said, without going into details, at some point in the late 70s, some people who were offended by some of his writing decided, I know this is going to sound shocking, to firebomb the Algemeine newspaper offices. Um, my father, who was a fighter, um, these were terrorists, to be very blunt. Um, my father, of course, would not succumb to that. And even though the newspaper was supposed to go to print within hours, he found another print house and they prepared the newspaper. In it, he wrote that he was born in Russia. His father gave his life and was not frightened by the communists and by Stalin. The Jews were not frightened by Hitler. So just like that, we won't be frightened by you either. And we will prevail and we'll move on and forge ahead. 
<clears throat> as the Jewish people have always shown how they endure. My father's style. And he printed a picture on the front page of his newspaper of the shot out windows and the fire. And then he wrote, there's a famous Volkswort, he wrote in Yiddish. Volkswort is like a folks statement from the a folk tale that says that after a fire you become wealthy. Okay. That next day, after the newspaper was printed, my father had to travel to Miami, for I'm not sure, for some business. As he lands, my mother calls him and says, the, Re- the, the Rabbi Chadikov, the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe's chief of staff, is on the, was on the phone and wants, the Rebbe wants to see him. My father was already in Miami. So what he did was he went right back. He was on the airport, I believe. He, he may have called my mother from the airport. This is, I said, in the late 70s. And he got right back on a plane, flew back to New York, and that evening he went in to see the Rebbe. The Rebbe stood up, went over to a bookshelf, took out a Derech Mitzvah Secha. This is a book on mitzvahs, explained by Chassidus, by the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe. And the Rebbe pointed to a page. Actually, the page is, do I have the page number here? Um, it's printed at the back of Derech Mitzvah Secha, that it's not, the Rebbe said, it's not a Volkswort, it's not a line, a, a statement from, from folk, it's Mipik Deshe Elyon. This was heard from the, from the holy supernal ones, meaning it comes from a very holy source. That after a fire, one gets wealthy. And it's in Kabbalistic language, in the order of the spheres. First comes Chesed, is kindness. Gvura is fire. And after Gvura comes Ashirus, which is Rachamim, which is Teferis. So Cheder, Chesed, Din, Rachamim. Cheder means like a room. It's an acronym for Chesed, kindness, which is limited kindness. Then comes Gvura, severity, which includes a fire. And then comes Rachamim, which is unlimited prosperity. That's what the Rebbe said, among other things. Next week, my father wrote about this. And the way he put it was this. He says, one of our Chosheve Lener, one of our distinguished readers pointed out that what I wrote is not a Volkswort. It's not something from the folk, from simple folk. It comes from Repeak Deishe Elyon. So I thought it's a nice story to share in this context. And that's exactly how it's seen. That, and that's what the Rabbeim say. So as I said, this is in Derech Metzitzach in the name of the Alter Rebbe. The Rebbe in his, in his Hagaz there, in his gloss on Derech Metzitzach, says this comes from a letter of the Tzamech Tzedek in a sefer called Me'a Sha'arim, which is a collection of different letters and uh, discourses, page 36. And there the Rebbe brings the gematria. So that's the source, is the Rebbe himself. I've not found it earlier, maybe it's there, but the Rebbe says, it's interesting to note, that Saraf is the gematria of Oshir. I also want to cite a talk that the Rebbe gave after there was a, uh, a car accident. A young stu- students in the yeshiva were going to a wedding of a friend. On the way back, they had a car accident and there was a fire in the car. Some of them got hurt. Thank God there were no fatalities. But some of them got hurt in the fire. And, this, and the Chukas Bolok, Tovshen Chavtes, that would be 1969, in the summer, approximately June 1969, the Rebbe spoke about the car accident and fire and spoke about as well different lessons that we learn from a fire, including this, and he made it clear that that this uh, that this idea applies not just a fire, but general any type of unfortunate uh, um, misfortune or 
a, a catastrophe or tragedy. One more thing I want to cite is the Rebbe's letters, volume 13, Igris Kedish, page 64-65. The Rebbe writes to a Yitzchak Vail, a French Jew. This is a letter approximately in the year 1955. A, a French Jew who moved to Israel. There was a fire in his kibbutz, it was called Zdei Eliyahu, a kibbutz in Israel, in which some holy books were burned. And the Rebbe explains, he asked the Rebbe, what can I learn from this? So the Rebbe said, nothing can happen to a Jew unless he's vulnerable. The Rebbe writes, due to a lack of proper respect and study of the books, that's why it opened up the door that they, some of them could have been damaged. It's an interesting letter as well about the lessons we learn from a fire. Now you could say this contradicts. It's not a contradiction because we have to always learn whatever lesson. We have to learn lessons how to improve our lives, but also know that it ultimately leads to even greater prosperity. So I hope that answers the question. But most importantly, I want to say no one should know of any fires or of any misfortunes or catastrophes. But in case there is sometimes a setback, to know this lesson that usher, that the, the prosperity that comes after a fire. Next question. Completely different, in different uh, area. And this is, the question is, are the Rebbe's words and images copyrighted? Who owns the Rebbe's words and images? Rabbi Jacobson, I know this is a hard question, but knowing that you never shy away from controversial topics, here I go. Recently, a new website was launched with a database of videos and pictures. I've, seen, I've since benefited from it tremendously, watching Fabrings and keeping my eskashris, my connection to the Rebbe strong. However, I've heard that some argue that there is an element of asagas gvul, which means that there are a certain element of like theft, literally, because other entities may own these words or images. The Rebbe was the biggest Shulchan Arachid, which means a person who followed complete Shulchan Aruch, absolutely. And, and I feel that it's contradicting to watch videos that may be belong to someone else. What do you think? Okay. So this is a controversial question, and I will um, address it exactly as it should be addressed from a point of view of halachich, siddis, and so on. So we'll begin with this. Talk of our personal experience. When I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, back in 1995, so this was after years that I personally wrote many of the Rebbe's Fabrengans. The Rebbe would speak, Shabbos, Yom Tov, throughout the week. It was the Rebbe's words, obviously. And we prepared them and annotated them, did it the way the Rebbe's expectations, and actually published them. For posterity, for people to use. When I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, of course, it's not the Rebbe's words literally. It was adapted from the Rebbe's ideas. Firstly, it's English, so it's immediately not the original of the Rebbe. But... It was called, Torah the Meaningful Life, The Wisdom of the Rebbe, Babavitcher Rebbe. So being that it was being published by a major publisher, in this case it was William Morrow, today he's owned by HarperCollins, then it was owned by the Hearst Corporation. So I told the, the publisher, and I told those involved, I wanted to tell them, that look, I think you should look into this, because I want to make sure that when you're doing a book like this, that there's no liabilities and there's no one has any complaints because someone may decide maybe that they have a right over the Rebbe's ideas or the Rebbe's words. Maybe it's copyrighted by somebody. I personally didn't think so, 
but I wanted to them to make sure so they should be comfortable. And I thought that would be the best way. So they interviewed me. A few of their attorneys, copyright intellectual property attorneys, interviewed me. Without going again into all the details, it was very fascinating to me. The first question they asked me was, when the Rebbe spoke did, and, and taught through Fabrengens or whatever means, other form of teaching and presenting, did, what, did people pay the Rebbe to come to hear him? Or was payment expected? So I said, absolutely not. They said, was anyone not allowed in? I said, no, everybody was allowed in. There was no payment expected. Did anyone ever pay the Rebbe for anything? I said, the custom was that when you went into Yechidus in private audience, you gave a pan, pidyan nefesh, that you often included with it tzedakah, either for the Rebbe's personal needs, maimed, or for the Rebbe's uh, programs and activities, at the Rebbe's discretion. Was it, was it a requirement? I said, it was not a requirement. But it was done, it made sense to do. Was it seen as being a payment for what he taught? I said, look, some people may feel they were appreciating the Rebbe and everything the Rebbe did for them, including teaching. But no, it was not seen as a payment for, like you'd go pay, pay tuition in a school. So I remember one of the attorneys, who wasn't even Jewish, says, so then the rabbi, talking about the Rebbe, is like Moses. His teachings are like the Bible. He didn't charge for it. Moses brought the Bible, the Torah, the law, from God to the people, and it's free for everyone. There was no expectation of payment. I mentioned to them, you know, that afterwards people contributed for the temple, but that was not a requirement. So then the Rebbe's teachings are in the same spirit of the Torah. I was like taken by it, because I never thought of it that way quite, but it was absolutely true. Is the Torah copyrightable? If the Rebbe's Torah then it's all, like all Teda. If, God forbid, someone says that Rebbe is not like Teda, then I wouldn't disagree with them at all. Then Yelahem HaShelahem. But if the Teda is not copyrightable, including Chumash, which is the written Torah, and the oral Torah, going through all the generations, then the Rebbe's words and his ideas are not copyrightable. And indeed, if you look at Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, another poskim, when they're asked a question, there were people who give classes. And they did want to charge. And people recorded these classes. Can they stop someone from selling a recording or making a recording when they themselves are selling the recordings? And he writes clearly that Torah is not copyrightable, even a teacher's Torah. What's copyrightable is this, that the fact that the teacher actually paid money to record it and wants to cool, uh, recoup his costs and maybe even make something for his efforts, so you could say that there he has some right but not over the teachings, it's simply over the recordings of them. Like, for example, if someone went and took a Gemara and retypeset it, like Art Scroll does, for example, so now the copyright is not on the Gemara itself, it's not on the lines of the Gemara or the words, it's they spent a lot of money on design, on layout, on a unique typeface, so there's a cost involved. But it's not a copyright on the title, it's a copyright on their presentation of it. So there you're talking about like any business. There there is. But at the end of the day, as we know, copyright law, even in the Goyesha world, is only a certain amount of years, 70 years, 90 years, corporate copyrights. There's no copyright over Shakespeare, over Mark Twain. Why? Because the only reason this copyright law, I'm talking now not, not Jewish law, the secular world, is because a writer is spending time and he needs to make a parnosa, there won't be any incentive. He won't, can't write because he can't live if he's not paid. But the ideas he shares after a while, 
children, grandchildren. It's not forever part of his legacy that great-great-grandchildren 100, 200, 300 years later can come and say, where this is our estate. How much more so with Teda? Teda was given in Amokim Hefker, the Medr says, which is Amokim Hefker means in the Midbar. Why? So God said, because no one should lay claim and say it's mine. If it was given in a particular city, you could say the people in that city say it's my Teda. You have to pay me royalties every time you learn. So the Abishtin gave it in Amokim Hefker. When you lose an object in the, in the wilderness because it's not a place of civilization, it's, no one can lay claim to it. So he gave the Teda specifically in a place that no one has a right over it. So clearly the teachings and Teda of the Rebbe are not copyrightable in that sense. However, and this is an important qualification, and I want to add one key point after I make this qualification. However, if someone spent money in laying this out, in printing it, and even paying writers or editors or designers or printers for this, for this there is an element that, that that has to be considered. But that's not a copyright of the ideas and the words of the Rebbe. It's a copyright of the presentation of it, as I just distinguished. Now, being that I'm not a Pesach and I don't want to rule, even if I could rule, this always has to be addressed with Rabban. I want to represent it more in the Ashkafadik way. And always, these things should always be corroborated with a Rav, with a, with a competent Rav that's objective. And if somebody comes back and says, there's a different opinion or a different approach, by all means, please share. And I'll be happy to continue this conversation. As far as videos go, honestly, I did not look into it whether it applies the same idea, because you can make the argument if someone spent money to hire a videographer or they themselves videoed an image of the Rebbe, you could say they have costs involved. So you can't suddenly go ahead and say everybody can just spread that video. On the other hand, you could say, one second, did they pay the Rebbe when they videoed him? The Rebbe didn't ask for money. Why? Because he wanted the words out there. So this is also, you have the two elements, the Torah part of it, and you have maybe the product part of it. And I would think that if Rabbonim sit down and people put their heads together, and not with any agendas or strings attached, you can come to clarity. Maybe there is a certain element of, of rights, not over the Rebbe and his image and his teachings, but perhaps over some cost that may be involved, as I said before, with with typesetting or design, or in this case, video, and so on and so forth. So that, I am sure, can be addressed, but I wanted to put it on the table. But one thing is clear, as I said, the Rebbe did not insist, did not, the Rebbe taught Teda and Chassidus. Now, of course, some people say, one second, what about Tanya? We know that Alter Rebbe writes in the introduction, that says he's asking people not to go and reprint this because there are people who spent money on printing time. And when the Rebbe made the big Mifta Tanya in the 80s, in the early 80s, he, he reprinted actually that section and saying that Kohos, which is the f- official publication that publishes Tanya, has the rights and not everyone should just go print Tanya's without their permission or without their, uh, without their stempel, without their seal. So there you could say a few things. First of all, there's an element of quality control. Not everybody just goes ahead and prints it in a, in a Hefkadika way. The Rebbe wanted those Tanya's printed all over the world. He made a very strong order that they should all be numbered because then you could have such a mess, like edition number 350 be printed by two people and you'll just have a complete hefkatus. Additionally, you could also say, it goes back to what I said earlier, it's not that ideas or words of Tanya, it's about the, the book itself and the presentation of the book. 
So I think all this is covered if you look at it in those two aspects of it, and so on. Now, you'll say, what about all this fun in the Maimorim and all the Chassidus and all everything printed by Kohos, which was the Rebbe, was the head of the Kohos Publication Society. So there too, number one, there's a quality control. Not everyone should go out and print and who knows, you can trust them. Well, they'll change anything. So you need quality control. Number two, there is costs invested in it. And number three, if the Rebbe himself and the Rabbein themselves say, I want, like the Friedrich Rebbe wrote and the Rebbe wrote, I want this to be published by this entity and not by another entity, then it goes back. That's that, then they're you're fulfilling their wishes. That's very different than saying that the Fabreng, the Rebbe's ideas or teachings and words, he is giving, he's charging for that. So there again, he's talking about, he wants them to be the publishers of his words. So it's not so much necessarily purely a financial thing, it's also he gave them the authority and did not give it to someone else. The author or the speaker of his ideas has that right, obviously. But in the bigger sense of the word, does he have the right really? Does it last? Because at the end of the day, his teachings are Torah. Meshach Rabbeinu did not have a Kohas publication society, nor did he have any other publication society. The Torah was documented, passed on, and passed on. So that is more open for discussion, Where's the tater part? Where's the publishing part? And so on. But again, if there's no agendas, I'm sure we can come to clarity. I know I did not come to total black and white conclusion here, but I think I laid out all the issues on the table for discussion purposes and made the debate rage on. I hope in a raging on, I mean in a positive way, a shalom dik way, a peaceful way. But it's an interesting topic, and uh, I think it's important to talk about. Good. In that spirit about Rebbe's Fabrengens, here comes the next question. Did people understand the Rebbe's words during Fabrengens? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, we, me and my family, enjoy your weekly podcasts. I personally learn from you how to wisely and gently deliver some subjects and or answers to public, to the public, even when I have the same opinion. I have questions which your knowledge could perhaps help. Well, actually, could help. I just added the perhaps. I came to this country in 1994, a few months before Gimel Thomas, from the USSR, and did not experience the Rebbe being alive at all. However, when my mashpia, my mentor, and teachers answered that they did not understand the Rebbe during Fabrengans clearly, only later on could they learn these ideas that the Rebbe presented in Fabrengen when, when it was in published form. I did not have a chance to ask Chassidim who chazed the Fabrengen, Fabrengens, those that repeat and remember and repeat and recreate the Fabrengens, but majority of population did not get it. Does it sound like charisma and or has Chaz Shalom? a certain hypnotic state when people are listening and don't get it for hours, for a few hours? Please provide me your understanding. Thank you. Okay, let me just uh, rephrase it a little. I just read the question on exactly as it was. He's asking a few questions here. First of all, that he hears from some people that they did not, you know, he did not, would not merit hearing the Rebbe directly, that even people who were there, Mashpim and so on, didn't understand when the Rebbe spoke, and they relied on once it was published, that's when they could learn it and really immerse themselves into it. So then he's a second question he's asking, so Chassidim was standing and listening. As, oh, one more point. However, he never had an opportunity to ask Chassidim, some people who actually remembered 
and actually wrote it down afterwards, what was their experience? So he's, I guess he's asking me, because I was one of those chesed. Second thing he's saying, the rest of the people that didn't understand was it just the Rebbe's charisma and some form of, God forbid, hypnotic state that got them standing and listening, even though they didn't understand. Okay, so the answer is, let's just talk practical and practical. There were thousands of people at a Fabrenga. To tell you that everybody heard it and understood it the same way is obviously not the case. There were some people who were there to be in the presence of the Rebbe, to say L'chaim, to hear a nigan, to pick up the spirit and all of it. They may not have even known Yiddish. They may have been too far away to hear the Rebbe speak when there was no mic. But they may have picked up a word here or there. That's one end of the spectrum. You had, as you go along the spectrum, people who heard more, but maybe couldn't repeat it. But at the time, they understood pieces. Then people who understood more. Then all the way in the other end of the spectrum, there were people like myself, a very small few, who actually our job was to listen and absorb it all. Did we do a perfect job? Human beings are human beings. I can't say we did, but we did a pretty good job. Which meant remembering a majority. We knew that the Rebbe spoke, for example, at the pace of, if you type, transcribe the Rebbe's words in the weekdays, the pace was every hour of talking yielded 20 pages, 8.5 by 11, 20 double-spaced pages. So if the Rebbe spoke on a Shabbos for bringing four hours, not counting the songs, that would yield 80 pages. And I'm not saying it's to toot our horn, but we were able to recreate 78 out of 80 pages without redundancy. That's pretty much verbatim. But that's the other end of the spectrum. People, there are very few that could do that. And some did it, but didn't do the whole Fabrengen. Without going into all the details. So that's the answer to the question. People are people. There are people who, and everyone has their own level of understanding. Obviously, everyone benefited, and I include myself. There are many things I didn't understand when the Rebbe spoke, but I tried to still remember the ideas. Later, when we wrote it down, I started researching it and looking at the sources. Ah, things emerged. Very, almost every week, there were things that emerged that I never picked up while the Rebbe was speaking. And that's already being immersed and listening and remembering and being completely involved. And there are things that till this day I continue to read and marvel at the interesting innovations and things that I didn't notice the first time. Even things I myself helped prepare. That's what Torah is. So once it's published and it's annotated, especially the Rebbe editing it, of course, the rest of your life you can learn. It's like learning a piece of Gemara and every time you see something new, learning a passing in Chumash, and, and understand new dimensions. So obviously, in hearing it the first time, obviously didn't pick up all those dimensions. It's almost impossible to do that. Even for the, as I said, the highest end of the spectrum, people who listen to it all. Now, I don't think about this hypnotic state, the charisma, no. It was, yes, reverence for the Rebbe, that Moshe Rabbein of our generation is speaking. We're hearing words of God. We're hearing words of wisdom, words of Torah, and it's worth standing there, even if you don't get it all, even if you get very little. Or the neshama hears and you don't fully necessarily with your mind understand. So there's many, many levels of experiencing it, which is perfectly fine, and that is hopefully a comprehensive answer to your question. Okay. Good. Okay, the next question is a painful question, but in the spirit of my life, Chassidus applied, we have to address it all. And... um, this really goes back to many, many topics I spoke, too many to even enumerate, in the early years, the early episodes, I should say, of my life, 
And this is to do with uh, sexual deviance and sexual negative thoughts and behavior. Dealing with paraphilia. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, your weekly broadcasts are a highlight of my week. You address contemporary issues in a candid manner. It is a relief to know that any matter can be discussed openly. A person with healthy sexual desires will feel attracted to people of the opposite gender. Though they wouldn't admit it, the percentage of people in our community struggle with paraphilias. I didn't even know what the word meant. That's why I felt I could say it. Then I looked it up, and it's, it's, it's negative. Let's put it that way. I should have added viewer discretion advised at this section. Maybe I, I said it a little too late. Okay, but better late than never. There are good God-free members of society who struggle with different sexual associations. Some people feel aroused by those of the same gender. Other people become aroused by children, people who feel aroused by the elderly. Nobody chooses to experience these conditions. They would do anything to make the challenges go away. However, the stigma is such that these people shy away from getting help. Even when, people, even when a person does get help, it may not be from a Torah perspective. How should a person with this struggle address it? What is Torah and Hasidus' approach to dealing with these issues? Okay. So firstly, I refer you back. I can't, I don't remember the exact episodes, but it's early episodes, like I believe episode two and three and four and 10 and so on, where this was discussed much more at length. How to deal with sexuality, what sexuality is, how do you channel it to the proper way. So the brief the brief point is this. Sexuality is not man-made, it's made by God. God created sexuality, created sexual attraction, <clears throat> And gave us guidelines how to harness it, directed towards positive ends. Not only positive, but it's the only way to give birth and create in this world, children. And that has to be done in a sacred way, in a sacred union, as outlined in Chumash and in Halacha, which is why it's called Kedushin, Sanctity. In my book, Torah Meaning for Life, the chapter on marriage, but specifically the chapter on intimacy, I describe it in basic, basic, simple English. So it's not about being celibate. It's not about avoiding it. It's not about being ugly or despicable or guilt-driven. It's about a powerful, powerful, mysterious force that God gave us to create and that includes and therefore has within it also the power to drive people with passion, with pleasure, which can go toward very positive ways or can also go to extremely destructive ways. So what you're describing is the destructive dimension. The ultimate goal, according to Tehrechsidus, is to sublimate it and redirect it toward positive place. Get married, sacred marriage, have a loving, passionate relationship with your spouse. That's the direction to go. Now, the fact that some people have paraphilia and have had different negative things, so it can anything. That's the past. We do tshuva, we correct, and we redirect is it an assayan, a test? Absolutely. Especially if a person's had already negative experiences. You know, it's very hard to just ignore it. But that's the goal. Ignore it and fill the vacuum with something positive. Is it difficult? Often difficult. That's why we need to have people that we work with. People who understand but can help us go from that state to a much more refined state. It's completely doable. I've seen it done. I've seen it done even with people who've gone through very horrendous experiences, either imposed upon them or their own experimentation and their own, um, their own um, perversions and so on. 
that have learned to harness, to rechannel, redirect, and harness that energy toward positive ends. Beyond that, I don't want to continue here. I think this is something that should be spoken about one-on-one. If someone has issues of this nature, find someone to speak to. Yes, there's great stigma involved, but find someone you can trust, someone that is not judgmental, someone that will not mock you, not dismiss you. And there are good people to do that. The rest, I leave to those more personal conversations. If someone wants to contact me, please go to the forum, but you need to send me your email address or phone number because I have no way of contacting you because it's completely anonymous, as mentioned. And you can write to us and try, try to help or help guide you to someone that can help in these situations. Always know there's always hope. There's always help, and there's always ways to become better and greater and not have to live in guilt and in shame and uh, feeling ugly and feeling like if people really knew me, you know, they really would despise me. No, you have a neshama, your neshama is intact. Even if people wander or sometimes the wrong place, they get caught up. There's always a way to heal. There's always a way to return. There's always a way to change course. Just like you got into it, you can get out of it and reach greater heights. Okay. The next is follow-up. But because of time limits, I'm going to do this follow-up next week. It's a follow-up actually to months ago about shaming abusers. I will get to it next week. We're going to skip that. I'm going to go straight to the Kassidus question. Please explain the difference between the terms the Torah uses for mitzvahs. Mishpatim, edus, and chukim. Okay. Mishpatim has this week's parsha, Eilah mishpatim. Then sometimes the Torah uses the word edus. Mishpatim literally means laws, rules. Edus means literally witnesses. It's commemorative mitzvahs, as I'll explain. And chukim. Zeis chukas ha So you have edus in the Torah, you have chukim, and you have mishpatim. So, firstly, let me give sources and explain what it means. Let's start with the Ramban, Nachmanides, in Veschanon 620. So he explains the difference between the three, and the, the three and these, and this is the difference. Mishpatim is logical and rational mitzvahs. Do not steal. Be kind, charitable. Honor your parents. Anyone could have come up with it. The Teda commands it, so we do it because of the Teda. But like the Gemara says, the Torah was not given, as the Rebbe Rashab adds, we would learn Tzniyas, modesty from a cat. Why? Because these are virtues and qualities that all of us can understand. So when we're told, it's understandable. That doesn't mean we don't, we don't have always sometimes difficulty fulfilling it, but that Edus is commemorative mitzvah, Shabbos. So what do we say? Zohar Hashem HaShabbos, because the Abish to create Vayichul HaShemayim, six days of creation, seventh day he rested, so we commemorate it. Or sometimes Shabbos is a commemoration of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, Pesach, Mitzrayim, Shavuos, Matan Teirah, Sukkis, sitting in the Sukkah. Commemorative mitzvahs are not purely reasonable, rational, but they're also not irrational or super rational. It makes total sense to commemorate. A blessing happened to you in your life, a miracle happened. You left Egypt. Commemorate it. Zeich Yitzchis Mitzrayim. Remember it. So Edis are commemorative mitzvahs. So it's a step above rational in the sense of rationale. It makes sense, but you wouldn't come to it on your own if you were not told to commemorate. Or you may have come to it on your own, but it's due to commemoration rather than just a rational, moral, ethical obligation. Number three is chukim. Chukim is 
super rational, that we'd never come to it rationally. Paraduma is the classic. A red heifer, it's ash mixed with water, can purify from the impurity of death. It's completely God's gzeda. God's decree, that's what it is, and that's it. Shatnas is a chukah. There are many chukim that are, that's what we got now. It's true that Rambam writes in the end of the laws of Tamura and similar me'ila and other places that even though all the mitzvahs are exeda, a decree of God, wherever we can, we have to look for a reason. But that's looking for a reason. So you can find the explanation as we'll soon discuss more at length. So that's the distinction. But here comes the big thing. All three are mitzvahs of God. All three really is because God made exeda. However, sometimes the exeda has no obvious original uh, an, um, ostensible reason. Sometimes it's commemorative, and sometimes it's very much with a reason. But God created a reason as well. So that's why it says, and I'll soon give you the sources, that even mishpatim have to be done like a chukah, because God decreed. On the other hand, God also created us with seich. As much as we can, we try to understand. That's why you'll find that even though chukah chakakti, chukim are super rational, and Ashleim HaMelech said, I could not understand them, that couldn't understand it. Yet, you see in Chassidus and other places, try to explain it to some extent. So the Maimorim that talk about this is really Friedrich Rebbe's Maimorim. Vayokim Eidus, Tovshin, chapter 1 and 2. The Maimor Tovshin, this is 1940, chapter 4. The pages are in that, say from Maimorim Tovshin, page 51. And on page 90 and on, respectively. Rebbe Eimer, the Maimer Rebbe Eimer Tovshin Beis, chapter 2, page 115 and on. And the Sefer Maimorim Yiddish from the Friedrich Rebbe, page 45 and on. The Rebbe has a Maimer, a number of Maimorim, the Rebbe speaks about it many times, but one Maimer that stands out, the Rebbe later edited, is the Maimer Havaya Liba Ezri, Yud Beis Tammuz Tovshin Yud Zion, 1956. Actually, 1957, sorry, 1957. It's printed as Sefer Maimorim. A look at volume two, I believe, page fifty-five. Okay, in the that's the early edition. So that's the picture. What it applies to us is very clear. It's how we relate to the divine. Why are there all these three? Because the purpose of mitzvahs is not just to be a divine decree. It's meant to permeate us and to be internalized. And that's when we try to understand it. So that's why there are mishpatim that focus on the internalization. Why are they chukim then? Because in any interface between the divine and existence, you need something that represents the pristine divine, not diluted by reason. That's a chuk. So a chuk is on one end of the extreme, representing so-called, this is what God wants. And that's, we sublimate ourselves. We're serving something greater. It's recognizing that's beyond reason. Then there's the mitzvahs that internalize and become part of reason. And the edis is somewhere in between. Sometimes it says in my marim, that chukim and edus go in the same category, or sometimes edus and mishpatim. But bottom line, edus is somewhere in between because this is the proper interface that our relationship with God encompasses all elements. Things that God says, just do. Nasav and nishma, you don't have to understand initially. Things that God says, I want you to understand, I want you to reason. And then, things that are immediately commemorative. And you should know that even the things that are beyond reason have to also become part of you, and even the things that are part of you, you have to realize are rooted in the pure divine that is beyond reason. The lessons in this are tremendous. In any relationship, you want to have closeness, and you have to have a sense of awe 
and respect. Av and Yira. So Av is sensing something close, where you relate to it, your reason. And there's things that you sense the awe, the distance. Not distance in a negative way, but beyond. And to truly grow, you don't want it all to be reasonable, because then it's always on the terms of reason. You want it to be able to be container to be able to experience beyond transcendence. And as always, in any type of journey, things you understand today, tomorrow, I'm sorry, the things that today you didn't understand, tomorrow you come to understand, and then your amuna, like he says, then the amuna goes higher. It's like climbing a mountain. So in the beginning you see the horizon here. You climb and understand that level, and you realize that horizon is much further. And the more you go, the more you realize how much more there is to go. And that's the journey in life. And we see this captured in the mitzvahs. And this parsha focuses on mishpatim. But as you'll see, the mishpatim too have elements always that are beyond pure logic. Okay. Finally, let's do now the three essays. So essay number one in Hebrew, a new perspective on the inexplicable challenges of our times. Yol Baran, age 35, Israel. So he talks about how do you deal with the inexplicable challenges in our times. In the past, there were challenges of oppressors and so on. Today, we live with so many comforts, and yet we find all kinds of challenges. And he goes on to explain, you know, we have challenges, lack of leadership. We have all the overwhelming distractions in technology. He goes on through all of these things. And he explains that every challenge has particular purpose. These crazy times have crazy challenges because we're coming to the end of Golis, and therefore we need to have another dimension that's beyond when he calls a Nisoyen, a test. A Nisoyen, Chassidus says, is really an imagination. It's in your imagination. It's not a real challenge. It's only a test that, to see whether you will, over, will not be deceived by this illusion. There are real challenges in history. We had real challenges. So he speaks about strongly about the concept of an Nisoyen and really has a very good twist and angle on how we look at the challenges of our times, the unique challenges, especially inexplicable ones. Because by the inexplicable, and he brings that when you... Through the, an inexplicable challenge therefore, cha, therefore transforms the inexplicable in existence and in life. So this... Um, essay can be read now posted on meaningfullife.com slash my life you read the essays as we are being posted from last year and you can also receive it in your inbox if you subscribe to our emails and we as we post them we'll let you know when they are available they're all great reads i must say and you know some we have ain't they saying shove is different people so some will find certain essays more more speaking to you more and resonating more than others but they all are have their own unique element to it. The next essay is also in Hebrew, dealing with sadness, Dori Galili, age 46, Sederot, Israel. She works in Amdux in high tech. Okay. Okay. This is also written very poetically, and I found it to be very, very inspiring. And gives solutions how you deal with depressed and sad feelings. One is you fight it by being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Zirizus. Uh, not alacrity. 
to do, do things quickly without procrastination, to move swiftly. It's one of the key things that battles the procrastination and the sluggishness of depression. A second one, that the matzav ruach, your mood, is something you can control. And in each case, you bring sources or a story and so on. Third principle, having humility and bitlatzmi, core, core humility and modesty. Fourth, true joy, beyond intelligence, super rational joy. Five, transforming or replacing um, uh, depression with bitterness, with sadness, I should say. Like the Alta Rebbe says, one is demoralizing and the latter is, more, is motivating. So transforming one to the other. And um, number six, to actually designate time to focus on that depression. Don't let it spill over into the rest of your life. You have something to focus on? Designate time and deal with it. Seven, Not sure what seven is. Okay. It's basically combining, joining the two joy and the sadness that you have both in your life. And they both can be complemented to each other. There are times where you cry, there are times where you celebrate. And then with a very good conclusion, that is essay number two. And finally, essay number three for this week. Marriage, defining the term. David Lichtenstatter, age 31, Brooklyn, New York. Works in integrity care. marriage is the legally recognized union of a man and a woman this definition is just one of many that were given by scholars over the generations it's rather quite a vague one but it embodies the view of which marriage was always portrayed but if sanctity of marriage is to endure we must define marriage and understand the essence of it so what is marriage and goes on to say as Jews we are privileged to know the importance of marriage in this essay we will discuss the essential meaning of marriage according to Hasidus and Kabbalah, and explore how these concepts can be helpful in our day-to-day marital life. goes on to speak about Shalom Bayis, which is, of course, marital harmony, man-woman, marriage and creation, and with a very powerful, good conclusion, key points. Another good essay, well worth reading. And I thank you for that. And I want to mention again the essay contest of this year, 2019, which is, thank God, out there, if you haven't heard about it yet, check it out. If you have, please share with others. It's a great opportunity. We're focusing a lot on getting it into schools, make that a project, and for students from all walks of life and from all over the world. So with that, let us conclude this My Life Citizen Supplied episode 246. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. It's always an honor to share a few words, and everyone be blessed. And Chav Beishvat may it serve in our merit, the Rebetzin and all her merits, together with the Rebbe, to give us the strength to do what we have to do and finish our job and come and, and leading us to Geula Hamitis Bashleimah.